Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 91 with Michael Dolan. Michael really just brought a lot of depth and wisdom to this conversation. It seems like he's a deep guy, enlightened in some ways with some rich content. So I think you will be enriched by him. So you're going to learn one, pitfalls to look out for that hinder a deeper development. Two, what is a positive no and how to deliver one. And three, tips and tricks to upgrade your workflow process. So if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items mentioned, you'll find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep91. And while you're there at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out some cool stuff from the 10 Days to Winning at Work email course that has my best tips and tricks to eliminate waste and enjoy work more from Enhanced Thinking Collaboration Programs, email summaries of the guest insights through the gold nuggets, and even holiday shopping recommendations back from the Black Friday episode with handy links. And thanks so much, people making purchases. It's so cool to see listeners also enjoying my favorite note cards and pens and other things like that. So a little dorky delight. But anyway, here's a bit about Michael. Before he found his calling as an executive coach, Michael spent 15 years in corporate management, leading teams in the advertising, consumer marketing, and design industries, where he gained deep appreciations for the intense personal and organizational demands that successful executives must meet every day. Michael has five years of experience as a senior coach and director of business development for coaching services at the David Allen Company. Here's Michael. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Good to be here. I'm excited to have this conversation. Well, I am too. And it's so fun. So I see that you were working at the David Allen Company and David Allen was so awesome as to have a chat with us back in episode 15. That you know, more than once I've had friends just bump into job postings from the David Allen Company, just send them to me like, hey, this sounds like you'd love this kind of thing. So I'd love <laughs> to hear, you know, in your own experience, you know, what are some things you learned from working in that industry and from David himself and that whole experience? Well, let's see. I started working there about 11 years ago. It was my first role as a coach. Before that, I'd been working in a combination of things like brand management and advertising and a little bit of design firm. And I ended up coming across David Allen and his work because way back when, when I was a brand manager at the Clorox company, working on Glad Plastic Wrap, believe it or oh, not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had a review one year that didn't go so well. I mean, it was okay, but the worst little checkbox was an area called planning and organizing on my review. And so I needed help and my boss said, hey, why don't you go find somebody to help you get better at that? And it turned out that David Allen was doing seminars and trainings at Clorox and met him there. And then I ended up getting coached by Catherine Allen, his wife and co-CEO. Several years later, after a little bit of career wandering and soul searching, I realized that coaching was the right thing to do for me and kind of more of why I was here in the world. And I loved working for David at the company. I was there for about five or six years. For me, it was the first time in my working life that I felt like I was just completely being me and doing what was natural as opposed oh, to cool. you know, playing a role or making things up 
or um, posing as somebody I wasn't. Mm. So that was a huge relief for me. And, you know, David himself, I have an immense amount of respect for. I think he's a pretty amazing man. Some key things that I've learned from him there, the first, as you might guess from knowing about getting things done, his approach is just his sense of integrity. You know, this is definitely a man who walks his talk and follows through on his commitments and is honest when he can't and learned a lot about that from him. Another thing a little bit deeper that still I think has a big impact on me that I learned from working there and working for him is David is someone with a very deep sense of spiritual purpose and a very deep spiritual practice. And you wouldn't necessarily hear that because he doesn't necessarily talk about that directly. But to learn and see someone like David who has that deep spiritual commitment and side of his life and to see that there's a way to express that commitment through seemingly non-spiritual work in the world. Mm. As a coach now, you know, I do some work around workflow coaching, a la what I learned from David, but a lot of my work now sounds like similar to you is around general leadership development, one-on-one coaching. And as a coach, I personally also have a pretty deep spiritual practice and community and have a deep sense of why I'm here on the planet and what's important. And it's not that I necessarily bring that conversation up every time I'm talking to an HR director who's considering hiring me for coaching, but to know that the work I'm doing that might be very kind of block and tackle skills based is still about helping other human beings be more fully expressed on the planet and also helping myself get out of my own way to do the same. So David was definitely an inspiration regarding that. That's fun. That's fun. Cool. Well, I'm so glad to hear it. And that's just a great description, like a job in which you feel totally natural and you, as opposed to kind of like contorting yourself or fitting into some sort of set of expectations, which is not you know so natural. And so that's cool. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. And I have to say, only in hindsight, could I really see how much I wouldn't necessarily say inauthentic, but how not freely me I had been in those previous roles. Mm -hmm. Kind of like once you go to the optometrist and you put on that new pair of glasses, you can actually see and only then can you really see how blind you were. Mm, Right on. And so tell us now, so the name of your practice currently is Truly Productive Leadership. What does that phrase mean to you? Well, when I was going about the task of, you know, heading towards hanging my own shingle and saying, you know, this is who I am and what I offer, I chose that name for my practice intentionally and specifically the word truly, truly productive, because I see my work, whether I'm working with leaders around workflow coaching a la GTD type stuff or around deeper leadership development, I see my work as not about necessarily having somebody be faster or better at completing and accomplishing more things in a materialistic sense. If I'm doing my job well, and they're engaging in the coaching at a deeper level, what it ends up looking like is they end up making their choices about what they engage in in a way that is completely aligned with who they really are at a deeper level and what really matters to them. So, you know, sometimes being truly productive may mean realizing and confronting yourself that you're not in the right role, you're not at the right company, mm-hmm. or you're not aligned with your vision or your sense of purpose about who you really are. And 
you know, it's time for some difficult conversations and some change. Sometimes being truly productive looks like not doing anything at all because you realize you need stillness, you need space, you need a break. So my intention with what I do and with the name that I chose is about really talking about how does it look to be a full human being who happens to work with other human beings to get stuff done in the world? And what does it mean to be truly productive? Well, so I guess I'm intrigued then. So it sounds like it can take a number of expressions and forms. So do you have like, you know, these are the sort of principles or tenets of a truly productive leader or is it kind of more open-ended than that? I do tend to look at three kind of core areas. I guess this is what tends to show up when I'm working with most of my clients. And those areas are self-management, self-awareness, and purpose. And self-management, not in the psychological sense, which typically is used to mean being able to uh, manage our reactivity and emotional responses. That's also very important. But when I say self-management, it's really about, do I have a way to manage all the agreements I have with myself and others in a way that I feel like I'm integrity and I'm doing what I say I'll do and getting done what I intend to get done. And, you know, I'm not spinning and kind of reacting to the latest and loudest all the time. So that's self-management. So with many of my clients, I do that kind of work. Not all. Sometimes they already have a really clear clean way of doing that. And that's not the issue we focus on. And self-awareness, second bucket of type of work, huge part of any coach's role, hopefully, is about helping clients. I always use the image of kind of like I'm standing with them with a flashlight pointing in some dark corners and saying, why don't you look over there in terms of your own experience when this kind of pattern happens in you and you learn for yourself what's driving this pattern, what's really going on under the surface. What do you not yet know about yourself that if you were open to discovering it could have you feel and be more free about how you respond to the world, how you express yourself, how you show up as a leader or how you show up as a dad, etc.? So I do various different things with clients to help them with self-awareness, partly as kind of what happens in the alchemy of the coaching conversations. But also, you know, I'm a fan of, for instance, a personality tool called the Enneagram, which I think is a, I haven't found anything more impactful and powerful in terms of being a mirror of self-awareness and kind of an an ongoing invitation to self-observation and to catching the machine of our personality in the act and therefore becoming more free from it over time. So self-awareness is a big, big part of my work. And lastly, purpose. Often when the other two buckets are getting some movement and getting some freedom, there naturally is a question and a conversation about what really matters and why am I here? Why am I in this role? Why am I on this planet? What really matters to me at whatever level that makes sense? So a lot of my conversations end up there to some extent. So when all three of those things are being chewed on, there tends to be growth and development. All right. Thank you. So that's a helpful kind of a categorization there to work with, with those three different areas. So I guess I'm curious maybe within those, or even if they don't fit kind of cleanly underneath the categories, you know, what are some of the practices that you find yourself kind of challenging folks toward repeatedly? when you're helping them out. And I'd say, I saw a great quote from your website that you're helping folks achieve a sustainable sense of balance and productivity. 
and improved effectiveness as a leader. That sounds fantastic. So what are some of the key sort of hows or assignments that tend to show up a lot as you're doing this? Well, you know, it's always different for every client. I don't tend to have a cookie cutter approach. So, you know, every human being is going to be coming forth with a different development opportunity in themselves. And part of the work is about helping to understand and explore what is that opportunity. So, you know, in terms of, I guess you could say practices, often a part of that is helping somebody get feedback about themselves to look in the mirror, so to speak, through the eyes of everyone around them. That tends to be an important part about that initial self-awareness because a lot of us want to have feedback about ourselves, but it can be pretty difficult to actually really take it in, not you know have our defenses come up and our fear get in the way of seeing something new about ourselves. So often feedback's a big part of you know, I guess you could say practices. If I'm working with somebody on what I call self-management, really GTD practices, the way David articulated them and getting things done are a big part of how I do that with folks. So helping step-by-step get somebody up and running with that approach, emptying their head, going through all their emails, going through all the stuff that they have attention on and learning to keep it out of their head, decide about it sooner rather than later, keep it organized in a clean, updated system and, you know, use all that, all those practices to help them make better choices about how they're engaging. So, you know, GTD practices are often a baseline. Sometimes what I found and seems to have emerged as my unique positioning as a coach is that often, you know, leaders at a higher level are being called forth to really develop deeply as human beings, as leaders. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes One of the key kind of gating factors that's getting in the way of their development is that they are having a hard time just keeping up with the volume of stuff and the volume of changes and delegations and email and meetings in a way that still allows them to have space for reflecting and thinking and doing the self-observational, self-awareness work that a leader needs to do. So sometimes what I find myself doing is getting a client up and running with the basic GTD practices, kind of clearing the decks so that they can have more space, more sense of peace of mind and control so that we can have the deeper conversations. So they can do the reflection and the journaling sometimes about what's showing up in their experience, what feedback they're getting, etc. Some other key practices I tend to, not always, depends on the client, but I see some form of a meditation practice or mindfulness practice as I always call it the fertilizer of self-awareness. It's a pathway to giving some breathing room for us to have curiosity and humility about our own behaviors and thought patterns, etc. And when we get more onto that stuff and more real about what's really happening in ourselves, it gives space for virtue to arise, different virtue like humility or compassion or sobriety. You know, things like that. Yeah, and I think that's very well said. And I could see this in myself as well as others, you know, that connection between whether you're just kind of sprinting to keep up with the volume. Mm-hmm. It's like, and if you are, you're often less generous, you know, I guess with your time. It's like, I don't have any time. It's scarce. I need every minute I can to just not die. <laughs> you know, that kind of a feeling. <laughs> yes. And as well as just sort of having that space for, as you said, self-reflection and such. So I know it varies, you know, client by client basis, but can you share, you know, in terms of when it comes to 
getting that space ahead of the emails and the meetings and the nonstop latest and loudest, you know, there are so the getting things done practices associated with getting everything out of your mind into a system is mm-hmm. sort of key. But are there a kind of additional things that need to happen in terms of, I guess I'm thinking about the actual renegotiation of commitments. Like, how does that happen in practice in which it's like, ultimately, I'm thinking some folks have to be told no, mm-hmm. and some meetings need to disappear, and some emails need to be kind of handled by others mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of like the tasks they carry with them. So what are some of your best practice perspectives when you got things kind of out of your head into a system, and now it's time to reduce the commitment load? How's that go down? Well, differently for everyone. <laughs> no cookie cutter, as we both agreed. What you're asking about really gets down to what happens in me as a human being when I need to make a request, when I need to say no, when I need to declare something that's true for me, despite however you might react, when I need to renegotiate something. We all have different ways that we get in our own way when we're interacting with other human beings about all that kind of stuff. You know, like a book that comes to mind that I've enjoyed, a really simple book that I've often passed on to clients who may be working on saying no is a book by this guy named William Urey called The Power of the Positive No. Hmm. He was part of the Harvard Negotiation Project, right. books on negotiating. Yes, and such. Yeah, exactly. And it's, I think, his latest book, or if not, it's one of the later books from him. And the basic... I mean, in your question, inherently there is, in any kind of renegotiation of commitment, there's a no that has to happen, either to ourself Mm -hmm. or to another person. And what he talks about in that book is that we all have our different patterns and different shenanigans that go on inside of us when we have to say no. And what he offers as a practice and a solution is to become more and more conscious in those moments of what am I saying yes to in this moment instead of this thing that I'm saying no to. So, you know, for instance, my son really wants to go play on that piece of equipment at the park that I see is a little bit sketchy. And I say, and he really, really wants to. And, and part of me, like the old, like nice parent who wants to be the buddy who wants to say yes, but I say, you know, Maxwell, I care so much about your safety that I don't think that's a good idea. No, can't do that. Nuh-uh. And the same thing happens when we have, you know, thinking about leaders who have A-type personalities who want to get it all done, who are used to accomplishing and feeling valuable through accomplishing, who have lots and lots and lots on their own list. And the first step often is being able to say no to themselves, to look at those things on their project list or whatnot and have the awareness to feel, whoa, I am over my capacity. I have been up until midnight for five nights in a row or a month in a row. I need something so that I can have more balance and space. And so in those cases, it's a, I'm saying yes to my own health and balance. And for me to be able to do the other stuff that is really important, excellently. And in order to do that, I got to say no to these things. And it might be difficult conversations, but it's a no to myself first. And let me go have that conversation with Bob down the hall. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, so that's one simple little framework from that book that I think is a helpful kind of inquiry for all of us. Cause we all, I think I experience it myself and I see in lots of clients, we all have different things that come up around saying no. Some people say no way too easily. Yeah. <laughs> and then they're left with, uh, not a lot of friends and seen as jerks and <laughs> seen as not cooperative. And they got to look at the other side of that coin. 
Oh yeah. You know, I'd love to get your take if you're thinking about people's, you know, lives. You said up to midnight, you know, many, many days in a row. Yeah. I've been noodling on this and exploring a bit about sort of research and studies about an optimal sort of amount of time to work and just how much good thinking the knowledge worker can actually do in the course of mm. a day and a week. And so mm. I have a feeling you're going to tell me it varies, but if, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, I'm being consistent, <laughs> <laughs> but I'd love to get your take there. And in terms of just like, what do you think is our capacity for thinking and knowledge work before, you know, we're suffering, maybe we don't even know it, but the quality of what we're, you know, producing and delivering is suffering because we're working just too darn much. Would you hazard a number or range of numbers of hours in a week? You know, it reminds me of an article I saw recently about a guy in San Diego who has a company that is growing like gangbusters and their company sells water sports equipment like paddle boards and oh, right. upright paddle boards. And I think it's a, you know, medium sized company. I think it's at least over 100 people. And they have experimented, and he as the leader has kind of made the declaration and created this culture where they only have five-hour work days. Yeah. And because they have this culture of... Well, the surf's you know, this, up, bro. You got to... Exactly. You got to get out there on the water. So right. they start, I think it was something like they work from eight o'clock to one o'clock or whatever the math is there. And then they have the freedom to go out and have their life. And the point that he was making, which I agree with, is that if you look at an average workday, if somebody's working 10 hours in a day, the total amount of time that they're actually really fully engaged, focused, creative, there, working hard, creating an output tends to be a small percentage of that. My guess, uh, I don't know, half of the time, if maybe less than half of the time is actually super productive. I think about the syndrome that I've seen with a lot of clients of mine who are working mothers, who are new mothers. Mm. And I saw this with my own partner, with the mandated change in their availability and their time, the focus during the working hours on getting stuff really done in a much more limited amount of time just increases. Yeah, And I guess what I'm saying is we all tend to doodle our fingers and twiddle our thumbs here and there during the workday. I think if there's natural rhythms as a human being that you can only engage fully for so long before you need a break and a rest and a change of scene. So I don't know, four hours, five hours a day of actual productive work. I think I buy it. And because I, especially I think if there's like a meeting, you know, that doesn't really need much input from you, you know, you can kind of coast, right? It's like you're, yeah, all right. You know, I'm just being informed. All right. That's fine. You know, or sometimes when it comes to emails, it's like, all right, we'll delete, delete, delete. You know, it doesn't really require a high level of right, like, energy and attention. Facebook for a little bit here mm -hmm. and check things out. Right. Exactly. If I think about my own personal experience, if I have a day where I have more than four or five hours of actual one-on-one -on -one coaching time, which is you know my version of I'm really on, I'm doing my work, quote unquote, yeah. to the highest level I can possibly do it. If I go beyond four hours of that per day, I feel like this is pushing it. Mm -hmm. You know, Lots of other things that I have to do during the day, but if I just think about it, that kind of frame, yeah, about four hours of that is about as much as I probably should schedule for the sake of my clients to get the best of me. Right. Powerful. But good question. I mean, I think one thing's for sure from my perspective is that we are all in a slippery slope of 
working longer and harder and later and not necessarily experiencing the impact of that. And it's leading to a lot of burnout and a lot of stress and disease and broken families. And it takes courage to see it and change something about it. Beautiful. Thank you. This has been kind of a a fun flavor of conversation in terms of, you know, very, very kind of thoughtful and uh, kind of principles and conceptual pieces. So I'd love it if we could also hear, do you have some favorite tips and tricks and tactics when it comes to when people do this, they really see an upgrade in their workflow processing or their collaboration? Yeah, you know, I go right back to what David articulated in getting things done because I think he really boiled it down to the truth of kind of human beings and human beings who have more to do than time to do it in and what needs to happen to alleviate that. And, you know, the basics are stop keeping anything in your head about any open loops of stuff you've got your attention on. Decide about what it means to you sooner rather than later. Park the results of that thinking in a place outside of your head that you can trust and keep current and review easily. And review and refresh that system regularly because it ain't going to clean itself up. And then trust all that great work that you keep on doing to feed that external system. Trust those lists and that calendar when you want to know, what should I do right now? Mm-hmm. Nothing's new about that. And David did a great job of articulating the truth of that. And there's some folks out there who say, well, you know, David's getting things done approach doesn't make sense anymore because we're in a modern world. And I have to kind of call bullshit on that <laughs> because there's nothing about what he said that has anything to do with the fundamental, the fundamental nature of what he said won't ever change if human beings always have more to do than time to do it in. You know, our brains won't, well, who knows? Maybe our brains will evolve so that we can actually use our heads to manage all that stuff. Or there'll be some kind of artificial intelligence system around us keeping track of all of our commitments for us. But you know, until that happens, these phases of workflow really, really work. Hmm. Yeah, and today, I mean, I think one of the things that I see out there, like I said, I think I sound like a little bit of a curmudgeon. I hope not. But <laughs> I do see, especially when, like when I'm going into the kind of San Francisco younger tech companies, what I see that I think is a dangerous trap for people to watch out for not falling into is in the effort of really being fast and nimble and moving fast with the business, people themselves are moving a bit too fast and leaving piles of open loops behind them. And it may have moved something forward a little bit by you know, pressing forward in a few words in an email. But if there's still an open loop in your head about that thing and multiply that by about 100 things, um, it's just going to hurt over time. It's just going to slow you down. Balls are going to get dropped. There's going to be conflicts. Work won't be coordinated well. So in general... You know, the dictum of learn to slow down just a little bit while you're making sense of something so you can speed up later, I think is really important these days. Oh, yes. Thank you. Okay. Well, now if it works for you, I'd love to shift gears and hear a little bit about some of your favorite things. I hope I can give some cool answers for your listeners. All right. Well, I think you can indeed. We'll see. So can you (laughs) share with us a favorite quote? A quote from an old boss of mine in a design firm. He said, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it. Thank you. How about a favorite study or piece of research? I thought you might ask this question, and it's not necessarily a piece of study, but it's a framework that comes out of two academics at Harvard, two people named Bob Keegan and Lisa Leahy. It's a framework called the Immunity to Change Model. It's a really powerful, simple, step-by-step approach to helping ourselves or someone else 
understand what's getting in the way of a change we're trying to make and keep on failing at. Hmm. Well, can you tell us a little bit about it? <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's a process where you have this four-column piece of paper and you know you start on the left side of the piece of paper with what is the behavior change that you are trying to make but are having a hard time changing? You know, Just name that. Next column is what behaviors am I doing or not doing that in doing or not doing them is getting in the way of that behavior that we want to happen happen? So what are we actually doing or not doing? Does that make sense? Yeah. The next column is what is our biggest fear or worry if we actually did the behavior we're trying to change. Mm. You imagine yourself doing the opposite of all those things that you're doing that get in the way. Verbally, in a five-second description, it can be a little confusing because there's a lot of flip-flopping of meaning that goes on through the columns. But eventually, in the fourth column, what was revealed is the underlying deeper big assumption that is driving this kind of one foot on the gas, one foot on the brake that happens in us when you know we all experience things where we really, really consciously want to change something, but when we look at our actual behavior, we're not. Something different is happening. And so it's a process that helps you get at at least a good theory about what are the big assumptions usually that have to do with fear. Fear of not wanting to be seen as X, Y, or Z. Fear of not showing up as our idealized image of ourself, that kind of stuff. And then once we see that big assumption, we can start testing it in the world. We can start making experiments in, with our behavior and then seeing, okay, that big assumption actually play out or was I wrong? So we can slowly loosen our big assumptions and then have more freedom to make that change. Hmm. Interesting. Thank you. Immunity to change is what it's called, ITC. And how about a favorite book? Well, a book lately I've been liking and recommending a lot is a book called The 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership. Hmm. by Diana Chapman and Jim Dethmer. Really like their bold approach at really going for it in terms of, you know, if we're talking about really wanting to be conscious human beings who get stuff done in businesses, this book goes through unapologetically, what does that really look like? Things like, I am 100% responsible for my relationships. I fully feel all my emotions through to the end so that I can get the value from them and respond in life more fully. I have integrity to my word, things like that. And there's 15 of them. I can't name them all, but I really enjoy that book lately. Well, thank you. And how about a favorite tool? Well, on the productivity side of things, I'm a big OmniFocus fan. Oh, me too. Mac user and OmniFocus is the killer app that had me most excited about changing to the Mac two years ago. And lately, I also, like many people, I think in the last year or two, have gotten onto the online scheduling bandwagon, but it really has changed a lot for me because if you could imagine, some of my clients tend to be a little bit out of control when they need my help. And so they, <laughs> you know, they need help being more in control. So when I'm trying to schedule things with them, often I had for five different potential clients, I had three different slots offered to each of them and I was holding them on my calendar. So my calendar was always screwy and there's so many different options too to online scheduling, but that way I just send them a link and they pick one that works and bam, it's scheduled. And that's changed a lot for me, you know, without me having to hire an assistant. Oh, that is great. And I just shifted from schedule once to Calendly myself. What are you using? I'm still on schedule once. It's still working for me. I, you know, kind of given my technology ecosystem, it seems to fit my needs, but Calendly is probably the second one that I've heard of and I've heard great things about. 
Oh, Schedule Once, it is a reliable workhorse. I just wanted to customize some of my things and then I had to like super upgrade in order to do that. I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. Yeah. We parted ways. We parted ways. How about a favorite habit, a personal practice of yours? You know, this is a bit personal, but I'm kind of a transparent guy. One thing that I've been doing over the last month, I was on retreat a couple months ago and became very aware of some early patterns that I had in terms of how my relationship with my father and I guess putting it in a nutshell, saw how closed I had always been to receiving his love. And so a practice that I'm doing every day is kind of a meditative slash imagination exercise. He's been dead for six years, but I'm just remembering him and opening myself up to the experience of him loving me. And it's really had a big impact on me in terms of the old equation of am I in touch with loving myself? And I realized how that piece of my parental upbringing and the influences on my psyche was a bit missing and I'm feeling strong because I'm letting this side in. So that's one thing I'm doing as a habit. Well, yeah, good news. And could you share perhaps also a favorite kind of resonant nugget, something you share that really seems to hit people and impact them? There's a quote, I actually have it on the homepage of my website, Truly Productive. And that is leadership is about bringing your whole self to the table. When you fully show up, others are naturally invited to do the same. Okay. And what would you say is the best way to contact you or get in touch? Listeners can email me directly, michael at trulyproductive.com. Check out that website, trulyproductive.com. Facebook page, you can search at trulyproductive. Yeah, those should all work. All right, thank you. And would you say there's a final challenge or parting call to action you'd issue to those seeking to be more awesome at their jobs? Yeah. You know, my take is that development as a human being should never stop. And we all, I think, sometimes get caught in patterns in our life where we unconsciously have given up on some aspect of our own development. So I think the challenge would be, where might you have given up? Where have you stopped believing that there's more to be learned? You know, is it a certain relationship at work? Is it a personal relationship where you'd given up on it being any different? Is it a pattern, a personality pattern in yourself that you feel that there's nothing else to see about? Some way that you're seeing yourself or the world that you might be stuck in? You know, that's my challenge. Where have you given up where you might open up to a deeper question and inquiry? Mm, thank you. You can tell I'd like to go deep. Yeah, that's good. It's good. I got to chew on every one of these for a little bit here. (laughs) That's what you get with Michael Dolan. All right. Well, Michael, it's been a lot of fun and really appreciate it. And I wish you all the best with your truly productive leadership and all you're up to. Thank you so much for your fun interview and your curiosity and really enjoy listening to your other interviews as well. So had fun. I really like that perspective about the positive no and how the no's are linked to yeses and some really meaningful ways in terms of the implications of each thing we commit to and renegotiating it. So that's got me thinking, and I hope it's got you thinking and acting. Once more, if you want to check out the show notes, the transcripts, the links to items mentioned, you can find that over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep91. And I hope you punch the subscribe button as our next episode, it's fun, it will release just after I am married. (laughs) Yay! So thoughts and prayers appreciated along those lines coming up this weekend. And 
It is from someone who wrote a book, The Universe's Most Kick-Ass Guide to Wedding Planning. So Stacy Dyer has some brilliance that she shares on how we can apply, you know, best practices, tools, tactics, frameworks associated with software development and other things to just optimize your decisions and just getting better outcomes by doing things smarter. So right up our alley. So hope to catch you then. Peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 